business strategy execution looks easy on paper. But when you start to follow your plan and put it all into action, stuff happens, hiccups happen, and you don't always get the results you'd like to get. Now, today's guest can help us zero in on how to smooth those speed bumps. He's an expert in helping organizations get to where they want to go. And when we come back, we'll talk about how you can drive strategy to get results without taking detours. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner helping you see business issues hiding in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Welcome to Business Confidential Now. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, and today's guest is Sean Ryan. Sean is a world-renowned business consultant, speaker, trainer, and executive coach. As the founder of Whitewater International Consulting, he's worked with international companies such as Disney, Nucor Steel, FedEx, and many more. With more than two decades of industry experience, Sean is highly regarded for his ability to guide organizations through complex transformational change in what he describes as a world of perpetual whitewater. Sean is also the author of the book, Get in Gear, Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results, which is perfect. So welcome to Business Confidential Now, Sean. Hannah, thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. I'm going to dispense with the small talk and go straight for the gusto. In your experience, why do so many organizations come up short in translating their strategy into real results? Where do they go wrong? Well, sometimes it's really just bad strategy. Uh, they haven't thought carefully through uh, who their customers are, how they distinguish themselves in the marketplace, what makes them unique. Uh, what causes customers to choose them versus choosing somebody else. And it, it and really it applies whether it's a for-profit or not-for-profit organization. But that's really a small percentage of the time. Most of the time, organizations don't execute because of a lot of the things that we talk about in the book. And uh, in the book, we, we, drive the, we, we identify these seven gears that we've experienced over time that keep organizations from really being able to execute well. Uh, there are, uh, we break it up into a couple categories. One is the, the, the first category are the foundation or the environment gears. There are three of those. Those are uh, right, 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 having the right people in the right roles with the right capabilities. The second of those perform, uh, environment gears is uh, the uh, aligning the organizational architecture. So we talk about the systems, the structures, the processes, and the culture and making sure that that's aligned to your strategy. And then the third is around creating a culture of communications. So being able to communicate up, down, sideways, diagonally, hold the difficult, tough, high-conflict conversations. Uh, and, and, and some of that starts with building that culture and having a culture of trust so that when we are holding tough conversations, we know that it's because we care about each other and we're trying to do the right thing. And then we've also identified these four performance gears, which really uh, they're designed to align the performance of every person in the organization to the strategy of the organization. So they're, they're relatively simple concepts, but we don't necessarily execute them on them all well all the time. So the, the fourth gear is making sure everybody has result-oriented goals that align to what the organization wants to accomplish, then the next gear is around having visible scorecards 
so people can see how they're performing relative to those goals. The next gear is identifying the critical performance drivers, which is kind of big, fancy language. But what it really means is identifying those critical behaviors or tasks that people need to do to be able to hit their goals. And then the last gear is the glue that holds everything together. We call it follow up, follow through. And, and in that gear, we talk about, first of all, generating learning. If we're not on track with what we're trying to do, why are we not on track? but then also creating accountability for both performance, for generating results, and for playing well within the organization's value set. And, and so organizations come up short because something may be broken in any one or more of those seven gears. Which one of those gears gets jammed up most often? <laughs> well, they all get jammed up at some point in time, but the place we like to start and, and the one that seems most simple, but for whatever reason, we don't do it particularly well, is the fourth gear around result-oriented goals. It seems really simple. People ought to have goals. What we find is a lot of times people don't have goals. And, and what they describe as their goals, even if they do have goals, tend to be more activity-based. Stuff I do not results I'm supposed to deliver. And, and so we're, we'll often start with an organization, and this is simple for anybody in any organization of any size, whether it's two people with a little startup in a garage uh, or a mid-sized company that's really trying to grow to a mega corporation or a mega corporation, is just have the performers write down what they believe their top three to five goals are, top five goals and then have their managers, their supervisors, whatever, write down what they think the performer's top five goals are. So now you've got two lists of five that should be about what the performer is supposed to accomplish on a day in and day out basis to execute the, organ the company strategy. The two lists of five ought to match. But what we have found over literally thousands of repetitions is that on average, about two out of five actually match, which means 40% of the time people are working on the stuff that are maybe important to the strategy. 60% of the time they're working on other things. And so that's, that's a simple place to start because if you can fix that one, first of all, we get better alignment between what people are doing and, and what they're supposed to be doing. And then secondly, if we're still not getting the results we want, then we can begin to look at the other gears and see which ones of those are most broken. So that's, that's always a great place to start. Get alignment around the goals. That's interesting. I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit about the goals versus the activities. So you're suggesting that people are just spinning their wheels doing like mindless work, like busy work that, that doesn't go anywhere? It, it's not necessarily mindless all the time, but it can manifest itself as busy work. So here's a, here's a classic. We cross paths with a lot of salespeople. When we ask them what their goals are, they tell us, uh, I've got to make 10 sales calls a day or 50 sales calls a week. Well, that's, that's an activity-based goal. I can go out and I can make a lot of calls and never deliver one unit 
of sales, never bring in one customer. On the other hand, if we reframe their goals into a result-oriented goal, that might be, uh, just make up a number, going to increase our unit sales from 100,000 a quarter to 125,000 a quarter by the end of 2020. Well, now we've got a starting place, 100,000 units. We've got an ending place, 125,000 units, and a time frame. We're going to do that over the rest of this quarter. Now, do salespeople have to make sales calls? Yes, but now it's not going to be mindlessly what uh, what a colleague of mine called one time, mindless cowpathing, just going from customer to customer to customer. Now I have to think about where am I going to get those incremental 25,000 units from? Who are the best customers? Who are the most ready and likely to buy? How do I manage my pipeline so that I get to the customers who are ready to buy sometime in the next quarter? Now it's not mindless activity. It's very focused and directed activity. Okay. I, I Maybe I give some people more credit than I should that if they're in sales, the goal is to make the sale, <laughs> not go through the motions <laughs> of pretending to call on customer. I, I, I'm sorry. You, you lost me on that. I mean, I understand what you're saying, and I believe it happens. It's just disappointing that someone could think that they could just go through the motions without delivering. Sure. Well, uh, let me, let me give you another great example. Uh, a customer service example. We were, we were working with a uh, customer service department and, and they had goals for their customer service reps, which was uh, to, to handle so many calls per hour. Okay. Again, it seems like a good idea. The more calls you handle per hour, the more customers you take care of. That seems like that ought to be a really good goal. But what, what we found was because they were under so much pressure to handle a certain number of phone calls per hour, what, what they would do is if they were falling short of the goal, they, they, would, they would literally pretend like there was a technical difficulty on the line and hang up on the customer mid mid conversation you know the customer's not gotten resolution to whatever the reason was that they called and the customer service reps would hang up because they were being pressured on this activity goal handle say 50 calls an hour whatever that might be versus delivering great customer service to the customer however we might frame that up and measure it and and so those kind of activity goals are lurking all over the place. Well, that's a good example because somebody probably had to wait 20 minutes to get through to that customer service person and was just thrilled to be cut off. But, you know, that begs the question about, you know, not all goals are created equal. And frankly, some goals are just stupid. Some goals are stupid. <laughs> Weren't expecting that one, were you? <laughs> well, let's no, pick a number. I, look, I have to. I, I, what's that? Let's just pick a number out of the air. I mean, and and sometimes, I mean, I've seen this, especially in very large organizations. Uh, the pressure comes from the top, increased by X percent. Well, the market or whatever isn't realistic for doing that type of thing. So you're creating a number that people, that is really an impossible goal. Well, that's a great way to motivate people, right? Right, absolutely. And uh, so that, that kind of gets us to that point. We, we talk about in follow-up, follow-through, a lot of people would go straight to the accountability part of follow-up, follow-through. And look, accountability is important. 
great performers love accountability and you know they they like to see us distinguish between great performance and mediocre performance or the person who really is a great team player in an organization that values team player team players versus the person who's wreaking havoc so accountability is important but the but the first part of follow up follow through in our mind is to generate learning look there there are going to be times that we're going to set goals that are unattainable you think about the goals that people might have had coming into 2020 in January, early February, up to maybe the first of March, and then everything falls apart with COVID. Well, I can't hold somebody accountable for sales targets, for performance targets, for you know, for profit targets, whatever it might be, when the whole world changes on us in the second week of March in 2020. So we have to generate the learning first. And now that's an extreme circumstance, but there are all kinds of things that happen in markets with competition, with technology, with changing customer needs and expectations, where we have to be willing to rethink the goals if necessary to make sure that people have the opportunity to hit the goals that we set for them. That's fair. That's fair. Now, you, you did mention something earlier that piqued my curiosity about communication. You need to have an environment where there is enough trust to have those difficult conversations that have to be had at times, because whether it's changing goals or somebody's not living up to expectations for one reason or another. Any suggestions about some do's and don'ts? Uh, Absolutely. The first starts with the foundation of creating that environment of trust and respect. Right. So we talk about it as a culture of communications. It doesn't magically happen. We have to, as leaders in organizations, we have to actively work to create a culture where people do trust each other, respect each other. Uh, a great friend of mine uh, who actually uh, led, a, was uh, <laughs> he worked for me for a while. He left my company and uh, went to work for another company where he became the president of the company. It was a relatively small business. He grew it from a $4 million business to a $40 million business to a $400 million business until it uh, got uh, sold off a couple times. Um, but he, he describes it as, as a leader, I mean you no harm. And, and his intent behind that statement is I'm going to create an environment where you have the opportunity to come to, come to work and do great things every day. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to support that success. We are going to have tough conversations occasionally, but I mean you no harm. It's always with the best intent of helping you be the best so our organization can be the best. So kind of it, it starts with that mindset. There are a couple other things that are built into the organizations that have great cultures of communications. One is it's not a need-to-know mentality, but it's a who else needs to know. So if I've got a piece of information, I shouldn't be sitting there thinking, uh, I'm only going to share it with you, Hannah, because if if you need to know, if you don't need to know this, I'm not going to share. My mindset needs to be who else needs to know? Do you need to know it? Who else in the organization needs to know it? I want to, I want to share information as widely as I possibly can. So people making decisions have the information they need. Uh, we also like to see organizations practice two up, two down communication. So if you get more than two levels in the organization, if you practice two up, two down, what it means is all information penetrates uh, the, the uh, uh, invisible marshmallow layer. If I'm communicating two levels down, then I know the level I'm finding out what the people who report to me directly, 
are communicating to their teams and what their teams are communicating back. And I know whether information is, is, is working through that, that membrane, that, that, that person or not, that level of the organization or not. And then as we've kind of talked about a little bit in, in organizations that are really good at communicating, they don't shy away from the tough conversations. We've got this environment of trust and respect we all know the intent is to do the best thing we possibly can for the organization. So when it's not, when we're not doing the best thing, whether that's something's in my way as a frontline performer, there's a, a stupid policy procedure or process. I've got a piece of equipment that's not working. My uh, information technology is not working for me the way it needs to be. I, I can share that with my peers, with my bosses, and we can get resolution. We have ways to, to close those loops and, and get, resolution quickly. Or if I'm a leader or a peer and I need to have a tough conversation with one of my other peers or with a, with a direct report, we don't hold back. We have strong professional ways to hold those conversations, but we hold the conversations and, and not create some kind of short-term, long-term trade-off where I don't give you the feedback you need. And a small problem manifests itself into a really big problem sometime in the future. They have a way of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's that it, it is the ability to just call it for what it is and not hold back. So, uh, you know, we, we like to call it, uh, there, there are a few things that go into really being able to hold those difficult conversations. One of the things we suggest for people is the idea of mastering the first 30 seconds. If I've got to have a difficult conversation with you, I want you to know what that conversation is about, within the first 30 seconds of the conversation. So that sometimes what we do is uh, I'll put a, I'll put a, a nice phrase on it. Uh, we call it the mud filled Twinkie uh, where I'm going to have a tough conversation with you, Hannah. And uh, I, I start off by saying a whole bunch of really nice sugary things. And then in the middle of the conversation, I drop in some mud, some stuff that's kind of ugly and things we need to work on and things you, maybe I think that you need to do better. And then I finish the conversation with more sugary coating stuff on the outside. What, what happens in that conversation is because the way we all tend to filter information, we filter in things we like and find pleasant that we agree with, and we filter out things that we don't like and don't find pleasant. Then what, what you remember is the really sugary coating I put on the front end and the back end and completely miss the uh, muddy part in the middle. So we, we encourage people, we work with people that if we're going to have a tough conversation, I want you to know what, what that conversation is going to be about within the first 15 to 30 seconds. So you know that we're talking about that part where I think something needs to change about your performance or how you're interacting with other team members. So that, that would be one key to holding those difficult conversations. Well, that's great advice, Sean. You know, I, I have to compliment you on your colorful phrases, the uh, the mud-filled Twinkie. I, I've typically heard that phenomenon that you described uh, and attributed to that phrase as a as a sandwich. You know, the the good we we buried the middle, and then you know, but the, the mud-filled Twinkie yeah. is is definitely quite an you know. Now get that idea out of your head, right? And the other thing <laughs> I wanted to ask you about is the marshmallow layer. Tell me about this marshmallow layer. Sure, uh, I first um, I first discovered it early in my career. I started with a large corporation in California, 
And uh, over the seven years that I was there, I had lots of mobility. Uh, one day I would be talking with uh, frontline uh, team members. There's a 28,000 person company. And then maybe a couple of days later, I'm talking to executives. It's just kind of the nature of, of the roles that I was in often. And what I was struck by it was an organization going through lots and lots of uh, transformational change at that point in time. And I was really struck by I would talk to frontline team members and and they would talk about the need to deliver better service to customers, to get the bureaucracy out of the way, get the stupid rules, policies, and procedures out of the way so that they could be more efficient. And if they did that, they felt like we could earn more money for our shareholders. And then a couple of days later, I'd be talking to senior executives and they would talk about the need, man, we, we, we really have to make it easier for our team to do well. Uh, we've got to get the bureaucracy out of their way. We've got to deliver better returns to our shareholders. And, and so the, the language was strikingly similar. But the thing that I was really struck by was the messages were also completely disconnected. What the senior executives were talking about was never permeating down to the frontline team members. And the challenges and the issues that the frontline team members saw and had to deal with every day were never permeating their way back up to the senior executives. And we, we didn't have a better way to describe it other than to call it this marshmallow layer, this kind of ooey gooey mass in the middle of the organization where literally no one was intentionally withholding information, but, it, but information could still not permeate through the, that. So the, the marshmallow layer is just a spongy mass that absorbed the energy of the information. Yeah, kind of draw the life out of everybody on both ends of the spectrum. It, it, that's an interesting phenomenon. And I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of strategy and a growing business, you know, it's one thing when somebody is small, they know all their employees, it's easy to manage. But at some point, even these large organizations were much smaller. And yet the marshmallow came up like a mushroom. So how can a small mid-size growing company keep that from happening because when information important information gets bottled up like that it it really can stymie the growth any suggestions on that front absolutely first uh, communicate as often as you can in as many way, different ways as you possibly can uh, and and part of that we have lots of great technology today but we also can't let the technology substitute for human contact. So, you know, being out face-to-face -face with the team and obviously in a, a small but growing organization, you can't do that every day. You've got other priorities, but being out in front of the team and connecting with people personally as much as you possibly can. Uh, when, when you're in those environments as a leader or an owner of a small, a small to mid-sized entrepreneurial business, um, I call it hearing the question or the statement behind the statement. When, when somebody asks you a question, often they're not asking directly the question they really want to ask. There's something that lays behind it. So having the empathy to hear what lays behind the question or the statement that somebody's making or asking one more question just to make sure that you're, you're hearing what people are really trying to, to share with you. Part of it too is, uh, again, listening in many, as many ways as possible, thinking all the different ways. So that might be holding occasional uh, team member roundtables 
where it's a pretty much open forum and people can talk about anything that they want to talk about. They can talk about the issues they face, the challenges they face, uh, so that you can surface those and resolve them. Uh, relatively small business I was in uh, recently in, in every work uh, area, work de- department team, they had a whiteboard where if somebody faced any kind of an issue, they could just wander over to the whiteboard. They could jot on the whiteboard uh, the, the issue that they faced. And literally every couple of days, leaders came through. They looked at the uh, items on the whiteboard, and they, they typically resolved those items on the spot. They, they put in the, every item was put into one of three buckets, either let's change it right now, uh, or we can't change it because of here's what the consequences would be. So that wouldn't make any sense. And that was relatively a very small percentage of the time did anything go into that bucket. And then there were a few things that went into kind of this middle bucket, which was, this is, seems like a really good idea, but we need to study it more before we make a decision. So what that, what that taught the team, what the team learns very quickly is I'm always going to be heard. There's not some mysterious black box that I'm trying to communicate to, I'm putting stuff on this board and people are going to sit down with me within the next couple of days and we're going to resolve the stuff on the board. So those kind of things can help keep people connected regardless of how si- how large the organization grows to. I like that suggestion. It, it beats the uh, suggestion box, which uh, so- <laughs> sometimes gets uh, filled with God knows what and is intended to be kept empty, not because they're resolving issues, because they don't want to hear about them. I know I'm being a, being a little cynical here, but I, I like that whiteboard idea because it's very visible and you can't hide from it. No little you, black you box. Yeah. yeah, you can't hide from it. It's out in the open, right? And I love I love suggestion boxes too, you know, because they're always dusty. I've always wondered why in a lot of organizations, in a lot of organizations when they have the suggestion box, why do they put locks on them? You know, what's exactly. the point of that? You know? So nobody <laughs> knows. <laughs> yeah, ooh, it's a secret. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. Let Sean walk over there and he just put something in the suggestion box. What was it? Somebody yeah. somebody go break the lock off. Let's see what he, you know. And yeah. usually it's uh, an empty gum wrapper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because we don't want troublemakers. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Now your book, Get in Gear, Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results. What are one or two things that you hope readers would take away from that book? The first thing is that whole idea of playing that game we call five on five. If, if readers read that and they just get people aligned on the goals, think about that. If, if 60% of the time people are working on the wrong stuff, I know you, you like to talk about the, the hidden things that are right in front of us that can help businesses improve a lot. There's one right there. You just get people better aligned to the strategy and the goals of the organization, you're going to be better off. So that would be one takeaway. Second takeaway is there are seven gears that connect strategy to results. But one of the things we discovered, and it didn't really connect for me perfectly until I was writing the book, which is you don't have to fix all seven gears at once. You can fix one gear. If you just look at your organization and think about which one's most wobbly, or, or start with that result-oriented goals gear, and then after you get it fixed, then you start thinking about what other gear might I fix next so that, so that the gears are actually, I guess, technically severable. Um, you can pick one, work on it, fix it. It'll spin a little bit better. Then you can figure out what the next one is, and, and that, I think, is a great idea. In, 
in any size organization, but in particular in small and mid-sized businesses, we don't have the resources, the time, the energy to fix everything all at once. But if I fix one thing, we're a little bit better this week than we were last week, then next week I can fix something else and we'll be a little bit better then. So I, I think that's a major takeaway. Very good, because incremental improvement is still improvement. And a lot of times we like to go for the big brass ring, but it's not necessary. So I think that's a very valid point. And, you know, in hearing you talk about the book and the recommendations and suggestions during our conversation, it sounds like it can actually help cultures and organizations become more resilient in coping with change and perpetual chaos. Would that be a fair statement? Uh, 100% true. We, we all are dealing, and, and I named, and you said in the introduction, I named my company Whitewater uh, International Consulting because we're all dealing with perpetual whitewater. Now, I, I named the company back in 2001, uh, not even beginning to anticipate, it, and I always thought it was a great name for a company. We watch organizations go through you know, perpetual whitewater in markets, from competition, technology, economic changes, all that kind of stuff. But if we didn't think that was true before, we know it's absolutely true now. And so organizations have to be adaptable. They have to be resilient. So the, the better we execute our strategy now, the more resources we create, the, the more capabilities we create in the organization, and the, the better our, our financial bank account is, our, or our financial balance sheet is, our balance sheet is with our customers, our balance sheet is with our team members, so when radically weird, tough times do hit, we are a little bit more agile, a little bit more resilient, and we can respond better and quicker to whatever those circumstances are. If you'd like to contact Sean to learn more about improving your business strategy execution process or his book, Get in Gear, Seven Gears That Drive Strategy to Results, you can find that information in the show notes at businessconfidentialradio.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from Sean's information and his advice, be sure to tell him about it and leave a positive review on your podcast app or at lovethepodcast.com forward slash business confidential. You have been listening to Business Confidential now with Hannah Hassel-Kelschner. Have a great day and an even better tomorrow.